As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father on earth, your son reminded us of your truth that it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Father, feed us now with your word incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ, and give us life in him, for we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Mark. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 8, verse 14. Chapter 8, verse 14, it's on page 1073 of many of our pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. And so Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 21 will be our text for this morning, but to remind us of the context, let's start our reading at verse 11 of chapter 8. So Mark chapter 8, beginning our reading at verse 11, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. As we've been going through the gospel of Mark, especially in chapters 7 and 8, what we see Mark doing as he puts his gospel together is telling two parallel stories in chapter 7 and 8. There are many parallels to what happened in the former chapter and what's happening in this chapter. Uh, We talked about last time we considered Mark's gospel that there was a conflict with the Pharisees in chapter 7, there's a conflict with the Pharisees in chapter 8, and then in chapter 7 there was a discussion about bread. When Jesus met the Syrophoenician woman, they had a discussion about the children's bread and whether it's right to give bread to the dogs. Remember that discussion. Uh, There was a conversation about bread. Here there's another conversation about bread with the disciples here. Mark has very clearly put this together under the direction of the Holy Spirit to draw out some of these parallels. Um, Of course, we remember the Syrophoenician woman for her understanding and her perception. That when Jesus told her what he told her, she accepted that. Uh, She accepted what he said. She understood what he was saying. um, And she answered accordingly. Of course, Jesus' disciples here show no understanding, show no perception. 
they don't seem to be able to apply what has happened to them to their current circumstances, and so they need further instruction about this discussion about bread. Uh, Jesus will need to refocus his disciples and guide them into understanding, and that's what we see him doing in this passage. Um, and we want to just con- con- simply consider this passage under two points. Jesus rebukes his disciples, and in doing so, Jesus reveals our needs. Um, and so if you're listening for a third point, it's not going to come. Um, so just be aware of that as we start. There's only two points. It's because last week's sermon was point one of a sermon that was going to be way too long. Um, so that's why we have these two points here. But they're very simple and very straightforward. Jesus rebukes his disciples, and in rebuking his disciples, he reveals our needs um, and shows how he is the Savior that we need. Uh, we find Jesus here rebuking his disciples. As we read at the end of the previous passage, his clash with the Pharisees left him departing immediately from their presence. We read that in verse 13. He left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. The departure was rather abrupt. And now Mark tells us that in, in that quick departure from where they were, um, somebody has forgotten to take enough supplies for the journey. Um, and they don't have enough bread, we're told, um, between them. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Uh, boys and girls, probably their loaves that we're talking about are not maybe like the loaf of bread that you have at home when someone comes home from the store with a big loaf of bread that's going to be good for a long time. Their loaf of bread was more like the loaf of bread that's up here on the plate for communion. Um, it's a loaf of bread that's maybe good enough for one person to have a meal. Um, It's not really enough for 12 people plus Jesus to have a meal. So as the boat ships out, they don't have enough food for their journey. Um, And when you're out on the lake, there's nowhere to stop in and buy food. And so they only have this one bread, this one loaf of bread between them. And that's an important detail that Mark gives us before he talks to us about anything else in this story. Um, Because they already have bread on their minds. Um, they're, already, they're already acknowledging that they've forgotten to take enough bread. They're already thinking about this bread problem that they have. And it's while they are thinking about this that Jesus says to them what he says in verse 15. He cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of, Fer- of, of Herod. Um, Mark sets it up this way so we understand why the disciples have bread on their minds and why when Jesus says something about leaven, they misunderstand what he's talking about. They miss his point. Um, Because when Jesus brings up leaven here, he's not talking about bread. Um, He's using that as a picture, as a metaphor of what leaven does. And using that as a picture for the teaching of the Pharisees and the teaching of Herod. What is is it that leaven does? Well, it gets into everything. right? When you put yeast in a lump of dough, maybe you do, I don't bake, but um, I understand that when you put yeast in a lump of dough, the yeast gets into all the dough and it causes it to rise. right? So the yeast goes in and gets everywhere. That's how leaven works. And so it was very common to use that metaphor, to use that picture to describe corrupt teaching. 
that it gets into everything and it corrupts everything. It goes everywhere. And that's what Jesus is telling them to beware of, to telling them to watch out for. Uh, Leaven that he's talking about here is not bread, it's teaching that the disciples have to be aware of. Now, we've talked quite a bit about the teaching of the Pharisees and what was wrong with it. Uh, The danger that they pose is that they have a religion that was committed to strict observance of tradition and strict outward acts of piety, but as Jesus has revealed it, it's a religion that is totally external. Uh, There's nothing in the heart behind it. Um, While they seem like they're very scrupulously devoted to God, the truth of the matter is they are not. Uh, They are self-righteous and hypocritical. It's only a superficial commitment to God, but their hearts are far from Him. That's the kind of religion that they have, and we can see why Jesus says to the disciples, beware of that kind of religion that's all outward, but is really just self-righteous and hypocritical. You have to be aware of that. So what does He mean by the leaven of Herod then? Uh, we've, We've seen about the teaching of the Pharisees as we've gone on through Mark's gospel. But what about the leaven of Herod? Um, What do we know about Herod? Well, there's only been two references to Herod that have been made in the gospel of Mark so far. The last reference was to Herod himself when Mark told us the story of the execution of John the Baptist and the role that Herod had played in his execution. But it's hard to see how that story tells us anything about what they taught or what Herod did. The other reference to Herod came in chapter 3, verse 6, when the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus about how to destroy him. There we were introduced to people who were teachers, who were Herodians, um, who had some kind of teaching. And we said at the time that these Herodians were not merely political figures, they were the religious Jerusalem elite. They were in the positions of important religious authority in Jerusalem. They were the temple authorities, uh, religiously much more in line with the Sadducees, who we know butted heads with the Pharisees. Uh, We said at that time the Pharisees were a very much, they tried to be a movement of the common people, and they were very much anti-Herod's government. Uh, They were very much against him. And on the other side, you had these Herodians and Sadducees who were very much not a people's movement, but an elitist movement, and very committed to Herod and his government because of the power that it gave them. These are two groups that have really nothing in common except their opposition to Christ. That's the one thing that unites them together. And so to bring up the leaven of Herod, that's a very different kind of leaven than the leaven of the Pharisees, very different in its, in its qualities, but just equally as dangerous because their religion represented a kind of secular worldliness, very skeptical about supernatural things. Remember, it was the Sadducees who denied the resurrection. Very skeptical of supernatural things and very committed to making sure their religion gave them power and prestige with the world. Made sure that it was to their political advantage to hold to the religion that they held to. Um, they saw religion as a, as a means to the end of power here and now, influence here and now. Um, it's the kind of thing we see from many politicians in our day. 
uh, people who talk a big game and pay lip service to their religious commitments but never darken the door of a church and never seem much caring about religion except when it's on the campaign trail to a favorable audience. Um, there are people who only care about religion insofar as it gives them political clout and power. And that was the, that was the leaven that the, that the Herodians and Herod represented, those who are too compromised with the world. And what Jesus is telling his disciples, you need to be on guard against these things. Because if they're, if they're pursued, they will get into and corrupt all true religion. Whether it's the Pharisees' kind of self-righteous formalism that pays strict attention to externals but doesn't have any heartfelt religion, that's poison to true religion. And so is a kind of skeptical worldliness where religion is only talked about and engaged in in order to maintain power and prestige, in order to give someone some kind of political capital or influence in the world rather than motivated by sincere devotion to God. Um, I remember watching the coronation of King Charles with my dad, and there are all these wonderful Anglican forms that go along with that coronation. Christ's name comes up all the time. Um, his name is mentioned. The fact that he's, he, he's needed to oversee the kingdom, all of these wonderful expressions. And at one point I was watching, and my dad said, I wonder if anyone here believes these things. I wonder if the king believes these things. I wonder if the bishops that are ministering these things believe these things. Um, we don't know. I'm not trying to make any kind of commentary. Um, but it's true, right? It, you can have all these wonderful forms, all these wonderful statements, and all of these wonderful things happening. But if there's no vital piety behind any of it, what is it worth? And if we look down the corridor of time at... At, at Christianity, we can see how both of these kinds of forces have been tremendously corrupting in the history of the church. When it's become too devoted to outward circumstances, outward acts of piety, and there's no vital religion in it. Or when it's been so compromising with the world in order to maintain a kind of political power or influence or some kind of prestige in the world, then it leaves and departs from what we're called to do. And Jesus says both of these kinds of things are poison for true religion. They will get into it and corrupt everything. Because that's not why we serve the Lord. That's not why we are Christians. Christianity is not a religion that we practice to try to impress other people with our learning or with our holiness so that they will think we are great. That's a danger, isn't it? We just care about what people think. It becomes all external. And it's not a religion that we practice in order to gain political power or prestige or other kind of influence in this world. That we pursue religion because of what it will get us or because where it will put us in the world. Why do we pursue Christianity? Why are we Christians? Because we believe that we were sinners rebels against a holy God. We were worthy of, worthy, worthy of eternal death and condemnation on account of our rebel status against our true king. We were totally unable to save ourselves from the wrath that was to come. And out of his great mercy and out of his great love, 
God sent his son to save us from our rebellion. The king against whom we rebelled came himself to save his rebel subjects. To save those who were in rebellion. And he did it by dying for them. Laying down his life for those who were enemies, who were sinners. Even at that great cost, he came to redeem and to save us. And by that death and by his resurrection, Jesus has saved us from the condemnation that we deserved and made us alive with him. And because we've received forgiveness of sins and eternal life on account of his work, we serve the Lord out of gratitude. Acknowledging the great work that he's done for us. And having an eye only to the things that he loves and that glorify his name. And that means that we want to be Christians and we want to serve God regardless of what other people think. Whether it will make people think well of us or whether it will make people think poorly of us. Or even make people hate us. We do these things because we love the Lord and it's our desire to serve him. Regardless of whether that means we will be blessed in this world and have privileges of power and prestige, or whether we will be hated in this world and receive nothing but curses and trouble for the service we owe to God. We don't do any of these things for any other reason than because we love the Lord and desire to serve him out of the gratitude for the great salvation that he has given to us. Jesus is teaching his disciples something that's crucially important. For them, as they go out to be his agents to build the church in this world, to know that these things are leavens that will poison what he's calling them to do. And how do they respond to this really important word, this crucial piece of information as they go out to build the church? They respond by having an argument about whose fault it was that they have no bread in the boat. Right? They seem to have just missed the importance of everything he said. Right? There's no questions about, well, what does that mean? Or what are you talking? They seem to have taken it as if he's criticizing whoever forgot to bring bread. And they respond to this serious word of teaching by arguing about whose fault it is that we don't have any bread. Right? What, what do they do as a result of what Jesus had told them? Um, they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Um, it's a great word for discussing that Mark uses here. It means they really, they really got to the bottom of what, what, who's responsible for the fact that we have no bread. They really get into the details of this. It's like, all right, guys, we have to think about some really important things here. Who dropped the ball? Who was on bread duty today? And who dropped it? Let's, let's put an agenda together. Let's have somebody make a motion. Let's talk about this. Let's get to the bottom of this really important stuff. This is what they do in response to what Jesus has just said to them. Uh, they get into the business of the bread. Uh, let's get to the bottom of what happened with this bread. Why do we not have any bread? That's what they get all into. That's what they make a big deal about. And that's what prompts the rebuke that Jesus makes in verse 17. His response. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 
Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? Right, a series of questions that he just comes at them with to try to explain what's going on with this inability to see or hear what he's been saying to them. And what is this rebuke really meant to do? It's meant to reveal the needs of the disciples. Not just the needs of the 12 disciples who are in the boat and hearing this, but the needs of all of Jesus' disciples. All of us who hear, who claim the name of Christ, need to understand our needs as disciples and where we can go so badly wrong. Jesus is revealing our needs here. Um, He wants us to understand the problem. We talked a few weeks back about the fact that we have an almost limitless capacity to forget what God has done for us. We talked about how we face a present crisis, and then we forget what God has done for his people in the past, the power he's shown, the love he's shown, the mercy he's shown, what he's done for people in ages past. In the midst of that present crisis, we forget all about that, and then we lose any hope for the future. We can't see things getting any better. We can't see a solution to our problem because we've utterly forgotten what God has done. And what Jesus does for us here is he says, let's look at the anatomy of that problem. How does that come about that we can be so forgetful? And he really reveals it to them in the way he asks the questions that he asks. He gets into the anatomy of forgetfulness. Where does it come from? Jesus says, why are you talking about bread? Do you not yet understand or perceive? Are your hearts hardened? That's where he begins with that question. Are your hearts hardened? Um, That's an important thing that we understand, that forgetfulness starts as a heart problem. It starts as a problem of the heart. The word for hardened that Mark uses here really means to cause someone to be completely unwilling to learn and to accept new information. It's not a hard-heartedness of unbelief. It's more the hard-heartedness where the equivalent would be a closed mind. A mind that's just unwilling to let new information in and unable to take that information and act on it. Um, It's a mind and heart problem in that sense. That Because we won't take in new information, because we won't apply that new information, the control center of our lives and our hearts is just unable to move forward the way we're supposed to on the basis of the information that's been conveyed to us. What the disciples have seen and heard, they're not, they don't seem to be able to apply that to their current situation, to let that information function. And because of this heart problem, this closed-mindedness, to what God has been doing among them, it has made them unable to see and to hear. Right? Not that they can't see things, they see them. But what they see, they they don't see what they should see in them. They've seen a lot that Jesus has done. But for some reason, they are unable to see what they should see in these things. They've heard what he's said. But for some reason, they're unable to really listen to what he's saying. To really be able to apply it 
and to make use of it. They remind us of King Herod listening to John the Baptist. He was perplexed by what he said, and yet he gladly heard him. He loved to hear him speak, never listened to him. Are your hearts hard? Do your eyes not see? Do your ears not hear? That's where the disciples are. They've seen things, they've heard things, but they haven't really seen what they should see. And they haven't really heard what they should heard, heard what they should hear. And because they have closed minds and insensible eyes and ears, they can't remember. They can't remember and make use of what they remember. Right? It's not just a problem of recall as if they've forgotten things. Because when Jesus goes through in verses 19 and 20 and asks, what did you see with the crowd? They remember the details. Right? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets were left over? Twelve. No problem. We were there. We collected it. We know. Okay, when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many baskets were left over? Seven. We know that. That's easy. We collected that too. You see, it's not a problem of not remembering the facts. It's a problem of an inability to apply the facts. They knew what had happened. They remembered what had happened. They just couldn't remember and apply it to their present circumstances. But we read this and we kind of wonder how amongst 12 of them When someone said, hey guys, we only have one loaf of bread, what are we going to do? That no one thought to say, Jesus can feed a lot of people with one loaf of bread. Right? Somebody should have said, we've seen Jesus feed somewhere between 571 and 1,000 people with one loaf of bread. Four, seven to 4,000 is tougher math, so I tried to do it before you. I don't want there to be math on this quiz. Um, But someone should have said, like, hundreds to a thousand Jesus can feed with one loaf of bread. This is not a problem. We don't have a problem here. Jesus is here. They knew that. They understood that. They remembered it. But none of them can really remember and apply it. And and again, we're so tempted to shake our heads at them and say, how can you do something so stupid? But we do the same thing all the time. If I say to you, Jesus loves me, this I know, you're already thinking it, right? You're reformed, so you won't say it back to me, but you know, for the Bible tells me so, thank you. Um, We don't usually have audience participation portions of the sermon, but okay, good. If Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we probably have passages that are precious to us about the love of God for his people, Probably many of us know the substance of Lamentations 3, 21 through 25. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We know where the Bible tells us so. And then we find ourselves in sin or suffering, and we call out, does God really love me? We know, but we don't know. 
We remember, but we don't remember. That's our problem. That's why we need a Savior like Jesus. That's why we need Jesus as our Savior. Because he can do what we can't do for ourselves. He can meet the problem that we have. Right? It's only a problem he can fix. To open a closed mind. And to soften a hardened heart. By the power of his spirit. Only he can make eyes truly see what they should see. And ears truly hear what they should hear. So that his truth can be applied. Only he can, by the power of his spirit, bring into remembrance the things that he has done so that we can apply them to our lives and circumstances. What we see here beautifully in this passage is Jesus' willingness to do just that for disciples who don't understand and don't perceive. We've seen Jesus' compassion towards sheep without a shepherd in being their teacher. And we've seen Jesus' compassion towards sheep without food to feed them. And now we see Jesus' compassion towards sheep without comprehension that he might lead them into the truth. Because what does Jesus do for his disciples who fail to perceive and fail to understand the truth and who cannot remember and apply the things that they've seen and heard and know? He leads them in a way that brings them into remembrance. He leads them in a way that brings them to understanding. He leads them in a way that brings them to perception. Um, he does not do with the, with the disciples what he did to the Pharisees in verse 13. He does not leave them. He does not depart from them because of their ignorance and lack of perception. He brings them by patient reminders to a remembrance of what they've seen and heard, that their minds might appreciate what has happened. And where does the Lord focus them? Not just on the bread and on the abundance, right? Not just on the bread that fed the crowd and the abundance that was left over after the crowd was satisfied. What does he remind them of? Right? The question tells the story. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of pieces did you take up? And by implication, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how, how many baskets did you take up? They've been discussing about bread. And Jesus tells them the bread and the abundance that was provided all came from my hand. By the power that's been given me by the Father, I broke five loaves and 5,000 were fed with 12 baskets full of food left over. And when I broke the seven loaves, 4,000 were fed with seven loaves left over. It's not really about the bread. It's about the one who broke the bread. It's not really about the food. It's about the one who gave the food, and what the gift of the food testifies to them about who Jesus is. 
Jesus is the one revealed in these miracles to be the promised Messiah, the Christ who was to come, the Son of God who's come into the world to bring God's people not just what they need, but way more beside. He is the overflowing fountain of all good things. That's what the questions are meant to reveal to the disciples. Not just remind them of the miracle, but to remind them of the Messiah. Of what it tells them about who Jesus is. That this is who Jesus is and that this Jesus is with them. Right? The one who broke the loaves is with them in the boat. The one who did the great miracles is with them. The Messiah is right there. So why is there any reason for worry? What is, what is the need that he's not going to provide for now? This is what Jesus is trying to bring them into memory of. They've been with him in a boat when storms are raging outside. And Jesus has had the power to calm the storm and save them from the raging sea. And now there's no bread in the boat. And Jesus is reminding them, I'm with you in the boat still. The same power that was all the power you need against anything that's going on in the world is the same power that's with you in the boat. Is that power going to fail you now? The thing they're really having trouble understanding and perceiving is that Messiah is with them. And because Messiah is with them, it doesn't matter what's going on outside or it doesn't matter what the problem is inside. He is there to meet the need. He is with them. And because he's with them, there's no reason to lose hope. This is what we need to understand. This is what we need to perceive in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our struggles, that Jesus is with us. There's nothing within or outside of us that we need to be afraid of because the Messiah is with us. He is for us. That's the power that the disciples needed to understand. The real truth that they needed to perceive. Jesus is with us. That's the answer to anything we fear. I look at my sin and it's great. Where do I go? Jesus is with me. I look at the challenges that I face or that the church faces in the world. Where do we look? Jesus is with us. That's the great answer. If we know him... And we know the power of his resurrection and the power of his love for us. What reason is there to lose hope ever? And Mark leaves us with that last question hanging at the end. Do you not yet understand? Interestingly, Matthew does not leave us hanging. When Matthew recounts this in his gospel, he says, and then they understood. Then they understood what he was talking about. Mark leaves us hanging. And it's always interesting to see one gospel writer do one thing and one do another. And it's always a good reason to ask the question, why does he do that? Why leave the question hang here? 
So that it's not just these disciples that have to answer that question, but all of these disciples, this disciple that has to answer that question. Do you not yet understand? Have you heard? Do you know your catechism backward and forward and still find it's difficult to apply that? To really know who Jesus is for you? Has your mind and heart been opened by the Spirit of Christ? Do you see and hear who He is for His people as a gracious Savior? Do you understand and perceive and remember our Lord and what He's done for you? It's meant to make us ask ourselves that question. Do you not yet understand? And it's certainly our prayer that God would grant us all the grace and the power of His Holy Spirit to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He sent. That's eternal life. And that's a hope that doesn't fade away. And that's a joy that lasts to know who Jesus is, to understand what He's done for His people and what He will always do for His people. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may He continue to open our hearts and our minds, and our eyes, and our ears to know Jesus so that we would remember him and understand and perceive what he's come to do for sinners and that we would hope in him for he will never leave us or forsake us. He's with us and for us now and forevermore. To him be all the glory. Amen.